Welcome to the second hour of the Tom Dupree Show. Joining us this week, Adarsh Meshru and our host, Tom Dupree. And we are powered by Dupree Financial Group. Um, this is a song from an album called Sticky Fingers, which came out in 1971. I would say that this is the album that put the Rolling Stones truly in the mainstream. Uh, that before that, they uh, had uh, had some great albums, but they were not considered um, really top 40. Well, they, they had some top 40, but I think they were considered more like the Beatles or something. <laughs> and um, so, or sort of just a blues type of band. But this album sort of coincided with their big-time concert tours, which became a spectacle in and of themselves. This is when Mick Jagger started uh, getting the cherry picker and, uh, you know, that thing that would take him out over the crowd and... uh, and they added, and they also had big blow up, humongous, like ten story blow up, um, different things too. Did you ever go to one of those concerts? I went to several. Did you? I, really? didn't, I don't really? know what you're talking about with the blow up. Yeah, it was like I don't, I can't remember what it was like. I think but, you, you might be thinking of a monkeys concert or something. I was not. It was it was Rolling Stones, and it was in Louisville. In about oh, they probably had it in Louisville, but not here. They didn't. You're right, and it was like in the late '80s. Well, this was way before that. This is like 1971, and this is when th- this album was kind of had a salacious cover, and uh, it was, you know, they they became sort of from some sort of a bluesy type band to sort of a. Andy Warhol kind of, I don't know. They became very in style. Leave that going because the, the the key signature changes time here in about ten bars. It it it, it changes to something. It goes bump 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 ba da da da. It does that in just a minute. <laughs> Hold on, keep it. All right, well, it takes it a while. You might have bop, 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 bop right over top of what you were talking about. Yeah, no, it, 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 I can I can tell you when it does that. Uh, I was a big record collector. There we go. Turn it up. See, it's, they changed the keys, the, the key, or the time signature, right? So you can do a lot with this. It's just, they went from... Maybe 4-4 four, four to, I don't know, whatever this is. You know what I'm saying? Not really, but it's really smart. It's got a different beat to it. That's all I'm saying. The way they end out this song is cool. So let's just go ahead and talk. All right. The power of, the, I didn't say get rid of it. Leave it in the background. The positive power of positive thinking returns to markets. This is from... Uh, Looks like the Wall Street Journal. Okay. 
There was a real good part, but that's fine. It sounds mad to ignore reality and listen only to what you want to hear. But markets work like this for a good reason. The ability of sentiment to influence the direction of markets was on full display this past week. Investors emerged from deep gloom and managed to find price-supporting rays of light, even in clouded news. The most important was in the interpretation of comments by Federal Reserve Chairman Powell on Wednesday after the Fed lifted interest rates by 0.75 percentage points. I'd like to stop right there because I think there's a big, big, big misconception in the market and in people as a whole that think that because the Fed increases uh, the Fed funds rate, that all interest rates throughout the economy automatically go up. That is not true. What happens is the overnight bank rate target goes up. That doesn't necessarily mean that all Fed funds will trade at whatever the rate is now, 2.5%, something like that. Because if a bank needs funds and another one has to get rid of it, they could do the trade at 10% or 0%. Bank Fed funds, that's overnight funds. That's This bank's got too many reserves, and this bank needs reserves, and they do a trade. for cause So they can, banks have to be able to close their books every day. They have to, everything has to balance in a bank. You cannot be short uh, funding. All your loans, all your assets and liabilities have to match. The assets are the loans. The liabilities are the deposits. Now, if you don't have enough customer deposits and your loan demand is so great that it's sucking up all your deposits or taking you beyond what your capital will allow, you have to go into the overnight funds market and and borrow from another bank. The Fed can set the uh, target rate for that, but it's still not clad in stone. So that's an overnight bank rate, but that has nothing to do with five-year money, 10-year money, 20-year money, 30-year money. Those trade based on supply and demand. Now, the Fed has tried and did was successful in uh, affecting the long-term mortgage rate because they bought a bunch of mortgage backs. The problem that, that, that they get into when they do that kind of thing is now they're acting more like an insurance company. And if they decide they want to start getting rid of some of their portfolio, let's say interest rates have gone up 2%. They're looking at being underwater on a lot of that stuff that they own. They could even have negative capital. That's why they've been asking Powell, is the Treasury going to have to backstop your BS here? And I don't know. I, you know, a lot of people are big advocates of the Fed. I don't think <laughs> if you looked at them as a bank, 
they're vastly undercapitalized in terms of capital versus all the assets that they've got. But I, th- I see what, you know, the market's got a key off of something. So they think because he's doing what he's doing that it's really going to get to the bottom of this, and at some point they'll be done, and now we can go to risk on. Right. So, I mean, we live in a pretty, uh, you know, upside-down uh market so for example today uh, the jobs report came out and it was actually pretty good uh, and the market dropped on the news uh, and the reason for that is that the market perceived that to mean that the fed is going to tighten even, even more, more. Um, and uh, prior to this the last few weeks uh, long-term interest rates have been dropping some of the economic data that's come out has been weak so the market rallied because of that, because the yeah. perception at that point was, okay, the Fed may be close to being done. Um, so, you know, uh, the news that you read about, you know, is almost, uh, uh, the impact of that news is almost the opposite of what you would think. Uh, and that's the sort of world that we live in. Um, and oftentimes, you know, markets do rally on extreme pessimism because that's when, you know, the, the last seller has basically sold out. Right. There's so much pessimism that there is nowhere to go but up. We saw that uh, in, you know, in March of 2020 when everyone thought that, you know, things were going to be extremely bad, but the market turned around and rallied. And we saw something similar over the last month where there was so much pessimism, everyone was focused on the macroeconomic news, on inflation, on what the Fed was doing, on the war in, uh, between Russia and Ukraine, where it was just negative news. And in the midst of all that, the market turned around and started rallying. And we've seen a pretty solid rally, uh, 13% almost on the S&P. Uh, so this is what the markets do. They're counterintuitive. Uh, and that's why it's best not to read the news and trade on the news. What's the, what is the S&P down for the year? Six, so, six or 7% now at this point? Uh, it peaked, I think, right around 4,800, and it's at 4,150 or so. So okay. it's, uh, it's still down over 10%. Yeah. You know, in the early part of this, of the last century and prior to that, you really didn't have a Federal Reserve Bank uh, sort of calling the shots. The, 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 the Federal Reserve Bank was a concoction, and there's a lot of conspiracy theories surrounding the uh, formation of it, but the idea was similar to flood control dams in rivers to prevent flooding and drought um it was designed to prevent huge booms and busts the problem is if you don't allow for real busts and the government stops it from happening when there's finally going to be a bust it's going to be a hell of a lot worse than if you'd allowed them to happen as they go along. I'll give you an example. Out west, um, in the uh, Bureau of Land Management uh, land, which is a lot of what's 
in the western part of the country. It's not national forest. It's BLM land. Uh, not Black Lives Matter, but Bureau of Land Management. And they have adopted these extreme environmental positions where you're not allowed to do any logging. Uh, you're not allowed to everything that falls in the woods stays there. Well, there's not enough rain out West for, for logs to really break down and decompose. So they just lay there and a lot of them are pine, which is full of resin when it's, really dry and catches on fire it almost explodes and so the, you you have these really bad wildfires every year that could be avoided by land management logging things of that nature but instead the government intervenes and, and sort of does an artificial fix i think the federal reserve and its role does exactly the same thing. It, it stops uh, meltdowns from happening when they should. And I think our friend Jim Grant agrees because he's written books about uh, different uh, meltdowns, one of which was in 1921 that most people don't even know about. And, uh, but it had its own uh, cleansing effect. Right, yeah. So his book was called The Forgotten Depression, 1920-21. And yeah, he makes that, the same argument that you just made, that uh, the intervention of the Federal Reserve prevents some of these, uh, uh, you know, I, I guess for lack of a better word, uh, cleansing out to uh, to happen, you know, from the system. Uh, Bankruptcies. And yes. And uh, it just keeps, you know, piling on and then there are these zombie companies and zombie banks and then at at some point you know the situation only gets worse um so the the role of the federal reserve originally was to just prevent runs on banks so if you know if someone wanted if a lot of people wanted to withdraw money from the bank and if the bank did not have money then that would lead to riots and so forth so the fed was there to backstop the bank um but it's since evolved to other things and, you know, controlling the price level and then making sure that there's low unemployment. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there is an argument to be made that the Fed is overreaching and meddling too much with the economy. You know, in the early part of our country in the 1800s and uh Banks would issue their their own currency, and they would have gold in the vault. To you know, like Lexington might have had six banks, all of whom were issuing currency, and all of whom had gold in the vault to back those notes. I remember one time getting a. $5 bill, and I looked at it, and it was weird. It was when I was a kid. Instead of having a green mark on it, like a Federal Reserve note has, it had a red mark on it. It was a U.S. note, still in circulation back in the 60s. 
uh, took it to my dad. He explained to me that that was actually a gold back note that uh, somehow was 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 still in in uh, circulation. Circulation, and uh, of course we kept it. I don't know where it is now, but probably the dog ate it or something. But um, you know, I mean. So currency has been uh, pretty much twisted, in my opinion, to the will of the uh, political state, uh, a way of staying in power for, you know, if, if, if the dollar doesn't have to mean anything, you can issue as many of them as you want uh, in order to spend money on government programs and you kind of end up uh, screwing the private sector, but that's the function of government. Right. And uh, <laughs> Where do you even go after that? <laughs> Golly. Well, I mean, you know, we, we all know it's true, so. <laughs> no, I'm not trying to be pes- pessimistic. I, I'm, I'm simply saying that I think as private sector investors, we got to be completely aware of what's really going on in order to learn how to try to get out ahead of it and, and invest, you know, in companies that don't need the help of the government and don't need, um, you know, are at least aware of what's happening. And, and, and really for those companies, the the currency that they deal in whether it be dollars or francs or euros or whatever is actually incidental to the product or service that they create that's their actual currency right that's right yes you know what was that company we went to see in helsinki that uh did some kind of mining. Oh, uh, Metso? Yeah. And it was like a crushing thing. Right. It was remarkable that, you know, in Finland, you got this incredible mining company. Right. It was just, you know, they were selling equipment all over the world, as yeah. I, as, as I they, recall. They were, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I traded over the counter, uh, but I mean, you could still buy shares over the counter. Sure, it was a either a sponsored or a non-sponsored ADR. Right. So, I mean, it's it's fascinating the different companies that are out there and uh, that have their own various niches. You want me to start that the, that song that you like so well that I cut off? We can go out with it. Did you just the, stop? Yeah, did you pick it up where you... I kind of did. There's a method to my madness in running this... You usually this. go right back to the beginning. No, not always. When running this board, there's a method to the madness. So, you're listening to the Tom Dupree Show with the Darsh Mashrew. We've got another segment in this hour, but we want to remind you that we have a third hour now coming up. This week, we've got David Kloiber, who is the candidate for the mayor of Lexington. We're going to hear what he visions for Lexington if he gets elected. So you want to stay tuned for that. And as I said, we've got another segment 
of this hour coming up with the Darshan Tom. You can always listen to more of the Tom Dupree Show at DupreeFinancial.com under the blog and radio tab. We will be back in just a few minutes. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Tom Dupree Show for the second half of the second hour. Joining us, Adarsh Mashru, our host, Tom Dupree. We are powered by Dupree Financial Group. Okay. Uh, article in the Wall Street Journal. Companies from Google to Pepsi are boosting capital spending. Now, the thing you got to understand is that's called CapEx, capital expenditures, the only reason companies ever do CapEx is if they see long-term growth possibilities in their business and a way to invest money in typically infrastructure of some kind. It's not hiring-related spending. It's not buying talent. It's uh, buying infrastructural things. Uh, that are typically uh, going to last five years or more. Uh, and this is a sign that they believe in their business. They will do CapEx projects. Now, you could argue that because of COVID and the two years that's been lost or maybe longer, that a lot of CapEx projects got put off, put on hold, were not done, and so some of this could be uh, 
pent up capex spending that's been put off for some time maybe five years or longer um and that they believe despite what doomsayers may be be telling you that you know they believe in uh in their businesses going forward and they're willing to do capex around it um that has got to be considered you know, a positive thing for the economy. I, I can't see it any other way than that. Yeah, I think that is a very big positive for the economy. So if you go back, you know, to the financial crisis, uh, for years after the financial crisis, one of the complaints was that businesses are just not investing uh, in CapEx. And the reason for that was that economic growth was very uh, anemic. You know, it, the economy was barely growing at one and a half, two percent. Um and businesses were just not investing. Um, and here in the last few years, you've started seeing a pickup in business investment. Part of the reason is because it was just time to, you know, the these things are cyclical, where companies had to upgrade their machinery, their uh, technology. Uh, a lot of it is businesses migrating from, you know, on-premise to the cr- cloud, migrating their data from on-premise to the cloud. Um, and uh, also uh, just demand. So millennials, they've become a big force uh, in the economy. So they are demanding homes and all kinds of things. They are spending uh, like the baby boomers did, uh, you know, back in the 80s and early 90s. So there are these forces that, that have come together that combined with uh, COVID, which showed that uh, supply chains were extremely vulnerable. So a lot of companies are now investing in bringing some of the manufacturing back uh, onshore. Uh, plus, there's a shortage of labor, so companies have to invest more in automation. And prices of things are going up, so one of the best ways to cure uh, inflation is by is through technological you know innovation where companies invest in things that uh, counteract uh, the uh, causes of inflation yeah i mean investing in capex is always going to be investing in productivity right and productivity is almost always going to be disinflationary right it, it is yes it, it's just and 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 when when you're when you're investing in capex you're not necessarily it's not it's not spending that would drive inflation the same way consumer spending might right uh it's it's going to it's more it's really not even spending it's investing right which is a big difference yeah so the multiplier effect of uh, capex is much higher than you know consumer spending or government spending uh, although consumer spending is tied to business capex, where if there was no consumer spending, then businesses sure. would not be incentivized to. Right. But yes, it does have a you know very positive rate of return. It's good for productivity, as you said. It brings down prices over time, uh, and it also secures supply chains, which you know have become a, a serious problem here recently. So uh, this is a very positive sign. Uh, Companies are flush with cash despite all the economic problems. They do have a lot of cash on their balance sheet. Uh, and uh, they are willing to spend. Uh, 
and you know that's that's a very positive sign. The unemployment report uh, came out today. Still, you know, unemployment is quite low. Uh, businesses are still hiring. So the recessionary fears that we've been hearing about is you know largely caused because inflation has you know kind of gotten out of control. Uh, and if inflation does get back under control, then you know companies are in good shape, consumers are in pretty good shape. Um, so I, I think that is a big positive for the for the economy and for the markets. Well, I drove out to the um, uh, Athens Boonesboro exit on I seventy five this morning. And diesel was $4.52 per gallon. Now, in Lexington, it's $5.49. Like, four miles away, it's a dollar higher. But I have to view what's being sold on the interstate is closer to what you would call the market price. Uh I don't know, six, seven, eight weeks ago, I was in Indiana coming back. I saw diesel as high as $6.20. Today, it's about it's about $1.70 lower. Now, if you consider that pretty much everything we buy gets trucked, and almost 100% of the trucks... There's a few that run on compressed natural gas, but there's most of them are running on diesel and consume hundreds of gallons a day. You know, they have gotten a significant raise in the last six weeks, uh, or let's call it a, 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 a tax cut, if you will. That's got to help. Inflation, it's certainly not inflationary, right. whether it's yet disinflationary or even deflationary, it remains to be seen if those numbers will start to work their way into the economy. But I just have a sense that, um, you know, you're seeing those commodities come down in price uh perhaps other prices are going to come down too yeah i think they they will end up playing a pretty big role uh and uh there's also another article here about the housing market so home prices have been very have caused a lot of inflation because home prices also reflect on uh, uh rentals and uh the cost of housing is a big component in the calculation of CPI, but of course that depends on you know where what stage you are in life and whether you are renting or owning or whatever. But um, home prices, I'm told, are coming down. That's right. what I've been. That's what I've heard. I, I don't know if it's true or not. I mean, I saw a house that was appraised the other day for a number that I thought was just ludicrously high. So I'm not sure the appraisers have figured this out yet. And then you know, uh, yeah, that. <clears throat> and you know so i mean i i look on zillow periodically just out of curiosity as to what's happening and i have been seeing a lot of homes cutting their uh, sellers cutting their prices uh but of course this is anecdotal to the lexington market um 
But yeah, when I see the Zestimate or whatever, and I don't know how they calculate that, that always seems higher than, you know. Uh, okay, so like a year ago, was it even as long as a year ago that somebody put a house on the market for, say, 550 and it went up selling for 615 or I mean, there'd be multiple offers, and they'd come in, and they'd bump the price up by 50 grand. Wasn't that happening, say, a year ago? Was it? I think it, it continued to happen through maybe june or july of this i mean so like I, even i haven't talked to my realtor friends lately but, but you know it can't be happening right now I well i've got i've got an i'm starting to actually see for sale signs on houses right um and and then a lot of times you can't completely trust that because the sale signs for sale signs are up and there may be an offer pending and they just haven't changed the sign but the um there are a couple of apps that I follow and get alerts on different things. And, um, and I have noticed that things are not flying on and off like they were. They're not necessarily getting discounted, but they're not selling quickly with multiple offers way over asking price. You know, and yeah. in bigger markets... Um, well, I know in California and places, you're, and even in Florida, you're starting to see some major markdowns on some of these big houses that kind of had ridiculous prices on them to begin with. But you know, and and so that that brings the question of what is it actually telling you? Is it telling you that the sellers have become overzealous and were asking too much, or is it? Um, is it that the the value is just not there? I I will just say time will tell. Yeah. So structurally, from what I understand, there is a uh, a shortage of homes. Uh, not a shortage in the sense that you know uh, where prices will only go up, but there just weren't as many homes built. You know to keep up with the demand that. Uh, because after the financial crisis, <laughs> home builders just stopped building homes. Um, so can I, I can I jump in? Yeah, please, please, <laughs> oh, please do. <laughs> well, I mean, you're talking about the home thing, and and you know this is this is Missy it, Clifton, by you, the way. You have to remember, people aren't real incented to get to put their homes in the market if they're locked in at really nice little you know uh, sub three percent rates. You know, there's, yeah, there's a, a you know, now where you're going to go. And so, uh, and if I'm, you get something new, it's going to be at a 5% rate. So what I'm seeing is, um, people who are being forced into the rental, you know, into the rental market that would have liked to have been home buyers. Right. Um, so according yeah. to money.com, they were looking at, especially the one you were talking about in Florida, the rental rates in key cities in Florida have gone up over 50%. It's nuts. Unreal. Well, our son, that's my two cents. <laughs> You sure, like what, you sure what? You sure what? Fifty cents. It's like two dollars. Yeah. Uh, the uh, our son was essentially forced out of his apartment in Phoenix, and it wasn't any great place either. By the way, good but, location. Yeah, it's a good location, but it was not such a great spot. And I think they jumped at thirty three percent or something, uh, just like that. And well, and for for a younger person, for a rent to go up eight hundred dollars a month, yeah, it it says yeah. Missy our our sleuth of information uh, says that Phoenix went up twenty five percent. Well, his went up more than twenty five percent, and it, he's going to have a mortgage rate 
when it gets worked out, that's going to be about half of what he was going to pay on his house. And so he was going to half of what he's going to pay in rent rent, for a house that he will get equity in. But that's a, that's another subject on that because in that Phoenix market, what was happening was investors that had owned properties since say, let's say 2008, they had increased, say they paid $80,000 for a rental property that they were getting $1,500, a month in rent off of, they were going to be able to realize about a three hundred and twenty to $400,000 profit on. And so the investors were turning their rental property and cashing out. And what that causes is a greater, there, there are not as many things to rent. So it was kind of a, it's been a double way. It's been a, as weird as the economy has been. So one of the things, and this does get back to the Federal Reserve, is that the Federal Reserve was supporting the housing market by buying lots of long-term mortgage bonds every month, $80, $90 billion worth, and they were indiscriminate about what they bought. They didn't really try to get that good a deal. They just bought what was out there. And a lot of what they bought kept the long-term mortgage rate at around – 4%. When the Fed got out of that market and stopped buying new mortgages, and I don't think they're selling their portfolio right now, but they're allowing it to run off, and they're not replacing it, from what I'm told. And so every month in a mortgage-backed portfolio, you have significant amounts of principal repayments along with your interest repayments because people, every time they make a mortgage payment, there's principal and interest. Some of the loan gets repaid. Somebody moves. They pay off their mortgage and get a new one, and that goes straight out to the bondholders also in the form of a principal repayment. The fact that the Federal Reserve has backed away from from making these kind of investments has cause mortgage rates to have to go back up to sort of where the market would be, say five to five and a half somewhere in there. That over time has to affect the price of housing. And it'll initially affect more medium range houses, but what's keeping those up is the fact that they're still somewhat affordable. So the next thing that's going to be affected are houses in the 500,000 to a million dollar, million and a half dollar range. Those are going to be very vulnerable in terms of getting hit in price. And, you know, a house, unless it is being rented out, is a non-earning asset. Back to one of our portfolio stocks, Airbnb. It gives you the ability to take a house that may be sitting there unrented and actually turn it into an income property, which unless it were a commercial property like a office building or a warehouse, it would not be considered an income property. To be able to lease it out can make it one. Right. I mean, I can't even imagine what hotel prices would be if there was no Airbnb because with Airbnb, hotel rooms are so expensive in many cities right now. So 
surely Airbnb has played a big role in bringing down prices somewhat, where people still have the option of staying uh, in other places. Uh, and they don't have much competition, really. There, there's, you know, Booking.com. That's the old Priceline. Uh, all they do is hotels. Typically, I don't think they do B and Bs or stuff like that. I've seen a few B and Bs uh, where companies can list their uh, homes or bed and breakfast on Booking dot com, but I think Airbnb gives you a better uh, platform, um, and uh, you know uh, it. Uh, it definitely is a way. So I, it, it depends. There are certain situations where Airbnb just makes sense. You know, if you're traveling with a family where you have kids or a pet, it's much easier to just, you know, stay at a home uh, versus stay in a hotel room. Or you want to see gophers out the back <laughs> window of the place. Yeah, that too. What? <laughs> it's a joke. Uh, yeah, in, in inside Norway. joke. Yeah, it was in Norway. Um, you know, I think that anything that can utilize something that exists in a new way adds to productivity, and it's disinflationary. Right. I mean, if you think about a market that is functioning as it should be. You should have no inflation. Right, right. You really shouldn't. I mean, if theoretically, if the market were doing what it was supposed to be, you should have maybe a little, but not much inflation. Right. So. Ooh, that came on a little hot. You're listening to the Tom Dupree Show with the Darsh Meshru sitting in. As I mentioned earlier, we've got a third hour coming up. Please stay tuned to hear what David Kloiber, who's candidate for mayor of Lexington, has envisioned for the city. He's got some good ideas. We also would like to have our Mayor Gorton on as well. We've issued an invitation to her. We hope we'll hear from her as well so you can hear what she has on her mind. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. 